from the steaming coastal forests of the lowland areas to the high deserts of the great American Southwest, this is Renegade Files, your source for paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, and conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. With listeners in over 50 countries, this is Renegade Files, episode 35, The Secret Space Force. Each year, over $90 billion is allocated to clandestine government operations. Collectively known as the Black Budget, the precise use of these funds is not public knowledge. Documents indicate that at least $10 billion per year of such secret cash has been used to create an underground military space force long before the official creation of our current Space Force branch of the U.S. military. What has been accomplished with these efforts, this money, and what is such an agency up to if one does in fact exist? In this episode of Renegade Files, we will look into the early years of NASA and the relationships between the discoveries NASA makes in space and the U.S. military. Then we'll dive deep into the activities of notorious computer snoop Gary McKinnon to learn all about what he discovered when he cracked a Pentagon database and found evidence of a long-standing secret space branch of the armed forces. Then we'll dive into some of the more esoteric ideas behind a secret space force. Finally, we'll explore the recently minted United States Space Force. What exactly is their purpose? What do they do? What is this space weapon that only awaits the president's approval for disclosure? And what the heck is the X-37B secret space plane? This time on Renegade Files, we explore the far reaches of the Secret Space Force. Secret Space Part 1. The Early Years. President Eisenhower created NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, to oversee the non-military exploration and research of outer space. NASA was organized with a civilian focus on scientific study and with the broader definition as an administration as opposed to an agency in order to have the ability to coordinate from a position of authority over multiple agencies if needed. Now, much is made of the fact that NASA was originally created to be a non-military organization dedicated to peaceful exploration and study, and for the most part, this is true. But the fact is that from its inception, NASA had listed among its eight main objectives the explicit directive to make available to the proper agency any discoveries of national security or military application. There is a subtle distinction to be made here though, and we should read the objective verbatim to understand it. As I said, there are eight original NASA objectives. Let's just go over them so we can hear the one concerning military applications in its context. The eight original NASA objectives are 
One, the expansion of human knowledge of phenomena in the atmosphere and space. Two, the improvement of the usefulness, performance, speed, safety, and efficiency of aeronautical and space vehicles. Three, the development and operation of vehicles capable of carrying instruments, equipment, supplies, and living organisms through space. Four, the establishment of long-range studies of the potential benefits to be gained from the opportunities for and the problems involved in the utilization of aeronautical and space activities for peaceful and scientific purposes. Five, the preservation of the role of the United States as a leader in aeronautical and space science and technology and in the application thereof to the conduct of peaceful activities within and outside the atmosphere. Six, the making available to agencies directly concerned with national defense of discoveries that have military value or significance and the furnishing of such agencies to the civilian agency established to direct and control non-military aeronautical and space activities of information as to discoveries which have value or significance to that agency. Seven, cooperation by the United States with other nations and groups of nations in work done pursuant to this act and in the peaceful application of the results thereof. And finally, number eight, the most effective utilization of the scientific and engineering resources of the United States with close cooperation among all interested agencies of the United States in order to avoid unnecessary duplication of effort, facilities, and equipment. These have been amended over the years, but they are still the basic objectives of NASA. The military objective is described as we heard in the very clunky number six and the important thing to get from that is that NASA is supposed to give the military anything they discover along the way that may have a military or defense application and it is then that military or national defense organization's responsibility to furnish that information to whatever civilian agencies are established to direct and control the non-military aeronautical and space activities. So in most cases, probably building of the gear. Still a bit clunky, but the deal is, as NASA explores space and develops all of the ships and satellites and machines and processes and tools to do so, anything they discover along the way that might be of importance to the military, they'll pass along to the military then it's up to whatever military branch that might be to give that information to whatever civilian company that might also need or want that discovery. I know that's a little redundant. I kind of described it twice, but it does make sense when you look at it. So the general idea is there. But one important point is it doesn't say that they must pass the discovery along, only that after NASA gives it to the military, it's no longer up to NASA to inform the contractors, so to speak. That's what I get out of it. In a nutshell, that is NASA and what they're about. Now, as far as the secret space program that we do know of, in the 1960s, seven astronauts were selected by the Air Force to staff the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, or MOL, two astronauts at a time for 40-day periods. 
Now, the MOL was something that floated around in conspiracy theory land for quite a while, but through freedom of information documents, now we know that it's one of those many things that were once a conspiracy theory and now have proven to be true. The MOL was an Air Force-operated space station created to spy on the Soviet Union during the Cold War. This operation remained classified from 1963 until 2015, so 52 years. The operation had a budget of $1.5 billion annually in the 60s, so double-digit billion dollars in today's money or more. The optics on the MOL were said to be powerful enough to see and distinguish something the size of a softball from orbit. So if someone was holding something, the MOL could look down and see if it was a softball or a grapefruit or a big grenade, I don't know. This raises the classic question. If they could see a softball from orbit in the 1960s, what can they see now? What's important about the declassification of this program is that it connects the military with a secret space program that was well advanced even as far back as the 60s, even if we are only talking about spying from low Earth orbit. So on the surface, this is the space program in the U.S. NASA is a huge organization and much of our modern world has been developed through their funding and the endeavors of those who work both for and with NASA. But is it possible that there is even more going on through the black budgets and secretive programs of high science at the deepest layers of covert operations? Part 2. Gary McKinnon hacking NASA, and the secret Space Force. Gary McKinnon grew up with a love of the night sky, the stars, and a father who was into science fiction movies. From a young age in the UK, he studied space and he eventually became interested in the UFO phenomenon. While watching the testimonies of those presenting through the Disclosure Project and the credibility of that panel could be an entire episode, but on that presentation at the National Press Club, Gary McKinnon first saw and heard Donna Hare. Donna Hare was one of the Disclosure Project witnesses. She had worked at the Johnson Space Center for NASA as a mission launch photographer and a photographic analysis expert. And at this press conference for the Disclosure Project, she described seeing a photo of a UFO shown to her by someone who also worked for NASA. While she was looking at the UFO picture, this person told Donna Hare, according to her, that his office was responsible for airbrushing out images of UFOs from NASA satellite photographs and that it was a full-time job for his whole department because there were so many. In her testimony, she said that this man worked in what was called Building 8. Armed only with this building number, McKinnon set out to see if he could find any of these pre-photoshopped UFO pictures. Now, I use the term photoshopping, and Gary uses the word airbrushing, and strictly speaking, who knows exactly what tools NASA used back then in the early 2000s, but for the purposes of this episode, both phrases are catch-all terms for altering images, okay? And here's where things get interesting. 
Although Gary McKinnon has been cast as one of the world's most sinister hackers, he really didn't have to do much hacking to get into the military and NASA computer files, which he got into trouble for accessing. At the time, he just did a search for the publicly available IP addresses associated with the physical address of the Johnson Space Center's Building 8 and maybe some other buildings he knew of. He heard Donna Hare refer to these on the National Televised Disclosure Project, so this was public knowledge, at least the names of these buildings. When he pinged the IP addresses, he discovered that Johnson Space Center was running NetBIOS on Windows PCs with internet-facing IP addresses and no firewall. Astounding, but true. In fact, McKinnon has said that he was digging through these NASA and military documents for over a year, and he never thought he would be arrested because if the information had been truly sensitive, it would have been better protected, or protected at all. He also felt that if they were this lazy about computer security, that it was unlikely that they had a robust monitoring system anyway. All he had to do was access the IP address NetBIOS, then do searches for activity and stored documents using simple Windows commands from a computer in his girlfriend's aunt's home, and he was in. Now I know what you're thinking, and as incredible as it seems, yes, it is true this guy actually had a girlfriend. But this lack of security by those in charge of the information McKinnon stole, and he did steal it, was an obvious embarrassment to the Pentagon and NASA. And it's my belief that this is a large part of why McKinnon has been described so dramatically as one of the most sophisticated and dangerous hackers to ever live mostly by NASA and the Pentagon spokespeople and their cronies in the media, and this has been ever since his arrest. So he is a cyber criminal, even though it was easier for him to get the documents than NASA would like us to believe. It would be like someone stealing my car when I left it unlocked with the keys in it, then me telling everyone it was stolen by the most diabolical car thief genius in history. Memphis Reigns. Strictly speaking, that would not be true, but it is still illegal to steal a car even if it's unlocked with the keys in it. So McKinnon was able to do this to the US Army, the Navy, the Pentagon, and of course NASA. And he says that while he was in these systems, he used a simple netstat command to see other connections, and he discovered that there were others like him in these systems as well, from computers in places like Turkey, China, Denmark, and as he said, the whole world. Scary. The first thing of interest he found after months of searching through documents using a program called LANSCAN was a spreadsheet with the heading Non-Terrestrial Officers, which was a list of about 23 military officer names and ranks. Then he found another sheet of about nine ships designated as USS. Then he searched those ship names and he couldn't find them anywhere. So as far as he could tell, they weren't existing aircraft carriers or battleships or whatever. He kept digging. He found 250 machines or computers, all with the default usernames of admin and blank administrative passwords. 
So rather than set up the computers with the discrete usernames and secure passwords, the agencies or whoever had set the computers up for those agencies had just formatted them with usernames of admin, then bypassed the password creation setup to allow the computers to be accessed when the password field was simply left blank. At this point, Gary McKinnon could have reached out to any of these agencies like NASA, the Army, the Navy, or, I don't know, the Pentagon IT department, and notified them of this security issue and probably parlayed that into a computer security consulting job for the U.S. military. Maybe there is a parallel universe where that happened, but this is not what happened in this timeline. Gary kept digging and looking through the files. Within these, he found photos of UFOs, and while opening one, he saw the cursor move on its own, someone closed his window, and in a few days after that, he was arrested. This was in 2002. And thus began 11 years of legal proceedings and U.S.-U.K. extradition jockeying. Eventually, Theresa May blocked his extradition from the U.K. to the U.S., and subsequently, all the charges against him have been dropped, so he's free now, and he's self-employed as a computer consultant and an engineer. In public statements, McKinnon claims to have found, through his unauthorized access, evidence of UFOs, anti-gravity technology, and the suppression of free energy. He said he investigated NASA photographs to compare the raw original images to the publicly released photoshopped images and by doing so found pictures of UFOs that had been manipulated to erase the crafts before the photos were released by NASA. Now this brings up one point in my mind, at least like a red flag. If that's the case, why would they go through the trouble? Why wouldn't they just scrap the photos and not release them? Sure, surely they have plenty of photos without UFOs in them. You know, we, no one said you have to release every photograph you take. If you're going to Photoshop it out and no one knows that, then how would anyone know if you just deleted the photo in the first place? So moving on. One image was a detailed cigar-shaped craft floating above the northern hemisphere which is the image he was viewing when his connection was interrupted and he was subsequently arrested. His computers were confiscated and he has yet to get back any of the images he saved. Good luck with that, Gary. Just to summarize what McKinnon has concluded after all of this, here are the bullet points of what he found and what he thinks, according to him. In Building 8 at Johnson Space Center, there is a department whose only job is to Photoshop UFOs out of NASA photographs because they are so commonly caught on satellite and orbiter cameras, and we know he found some of the photos. McKinnon found a U.S. Navy spreadsheet entitled Non-Terrestrial Officers, so either Earthling officers in space or extraterrestrial officers on Earth like the Greys or the Tall Whites the draconians. McKinnon says on this list were about 25 Excel spreadsheet rows with officers' ranks and names. He also found a spreadsheet listing 8 to 10 ships having the prefix USS, just like American sea vessels. So, the USS Nebuchadnezzar. Some information online indicates that the ships on this list had prefixes with an extra S, so USSS, and these articles infer that USSS stands for United States Spaceship, but I've never seen or heard McKinnon say anything about this USSS designation, 
I think that may be just wishful thinking from a few creative bloggers. McKinnon estimates the numbers of ships and non-terrestrial officers in these documents because he didn't memorize them before they were confiscated along with all the data he had on his computers. And as we know, he hasn't got anything back yet, so he's just going from memory. He says he also found documents detailing material transfer between ships. That's interesting if these truly are spaceships, but it's boring if it isn't. McKinnon says all of this points to evidence that the USA has warships in space. McKinnon is most likely made a public example by NASA and the US military due to their embarrassing lack of computer security, which he exploited. But he was likely saved from a full character assassination and disinformation campaign because his UK to US extradition was blocked. A guy who broke the law by snooping in places he knew he shouldn't and who did find interesting things about a space force and an institutionalized UFO photo cover-up, but all of the evidence he stole has been confiscated and it's unlikely we will ever see any of it so we have to take his word and his less than photographic memory of what those documents and images contained. But the hijinks of Gary McKinnon is only part of the secret Space Force story. This topic has become its own rabbit hole to say the least and let's just file most of what we're about to get into under the heading B for bananas and dive in headfirst into the full tilt weird stuff because that's where it gets fun. But before we do, I want to also say that there is another reason to go deep into some of these more bleeding edge strangeness platforms, which is that the UFO and alien hypothesis research community, if it suffers from anything, it suffers from a lack of proof. Not as much lately with ATIP and Pentagon disclosure, as thin as that may be, and military footage of what they call UAPs. I refuse, but still, overall, the UFO research community has struggled with solid evidence or they have watched helplessly as solid evidence has been covered up since Roswell. So my point is that yes, it can be fun to dive into some of the more outlandish claims, but at the same time, it's also imperative for serious UFO researchers into this already fragile subject to call out BS when we see it. That being said, let's take a look into some of these ideas, mostly since a discussion of the secret space program topic would be incomplete without them. At the top of the list is Corey Good. Corey Good has become a controversial figure in the world of UFO enthusiasts and secret space speculators. He has a formidable online presence and platform. Just to give you some idea of his presence, he has 103,000 followers on Facebook. Not huge, but pretty solid. And he has 1,700 followers on Instagram, which also isn't large by any means, but it's not bad for a page with a whopping 14 posts. When you go through his websites, the first thing you notice is that he has a lot of things for sale. Books, comic books, seminars, classes, films, other people's books through affiliate links. And I get it, this is his business. 
But when you read through his information, like who he is and what's going on in the worlds of disclosure, well, things go a bit... Okay, I'm not here to judge. I will just fill you in on the gist of it and you can decide what you think. He does have a sizable following, it seems. So Corey Good, and that's C-O-R-E-Y-G-O-O-D-E, first came into widespread public attention when the production company Gaia first got into producing television shows. Gaia TV is owned by Clear Channel, who also owns the vast majority of radio stations, billboards, and concert venue amphitheaters in the U.S. In this way, they are a vertically integrated virtual monopoly, and if you want to fully understand why that's important, try to book your rock band in one of their amphitheaters and see how many billboard and radio ads you also have to purchase in order to do so. And if you don't want to pay for those ads, then find another amphitheater. But oh wait, they own all of them. So if you imagine that Gaia TV is a totally new age fringe information source, they are actually as mainstream as media gets. So one of their first shows featured David Wilcock and Corey Good, and the basics of Good's story is that when he was six years old, he was genetically altered by the military to be able to withstand interstellar travel. Then later, as a young man, he was sent to live on Mars for 20 years. Then he was brought back to Earth and returned to the age he was before he left 20 years before. While away on Mars, he met with aliens he calls the Blue Avians, who have blue feathers and look like humanoid birds. So, humans with blue feathers and bird heads. Beaks. Good was appointed by the Blue Avians to be their ambassador back here on Earth, and now he works with the military and the Blue Avian aliens and a bunch of other aliens from other places in the solar system and the galaxy, as well as a contingency of beings who live inside the hollow Earth, and they are called Mayans, I'm pretty sure, and his mission is to prepare everyone on Earth for the ascension into a new age paradigm of peace, love, and understanding. And this also comes with free energy and unlimited food and maybe some other perks. You can read all of this and more for yourself on his websites, which you can find with a quick search. Much of his information and meetings with the blue chicken aliens, as Dark Journalist calls them, take place on the astral plane through channeling and meditation, but it's not limited to that. So here we come to my personal opinion, and one that I believe is also shared by Dark Journalist Daniel List and many others, which is, honestly, this is exactly not the kind of madness the UFO research community needs right now. So in light of that position and its glaringly obvious nature, you have to ask yourself who benefits from this kind of fantasy. Well, obviously Corey Good does if he sells any comic books and fills up hotel conference rooms for his events, which he does. 
He networks with others like David Wilcock, and together they act as insider resources for each other's articles. And I'd say that the best case scenario is that their productions are a business model aimed at a certain demographic that merges new age positivity, not a bad thing at all, with gullible hopefulness and a willingness to first believe and secondly project a rock star-like celebrity persona onto someone like Good or Wilcock and then buy what they sell and go to their events. So that's the best, most benign explanation of what's going on here. The second, more serious possibility is that these personalities and stories are active disinformation agents and products propagated by, or at least supported by, deep state projects or actual secret space programs through their public relations arm, which is the mainstream media. And remember, Gaia TV is Clear Channel. If so, this is classic fake conspiracy territory where a fully made up line of nonsense is created to marginalize the real findings and legitimate criticisms of serious researchers. I always say look at who benefits. In this case, maybe it's twofold. Good and his team benefit from wide-scale exposure and sales, and the powers that be benefit by creating an easily discredited narrative to attach to any credible journalism or research into their clandestine activity. And what would be the incentive to do that? Billions upon billions of dark budget dollars. The main evidence for the latter is this. If Corey Good is in fact the secret Space Force whistleblower that he literally describes himself as in the first words of his Instagram bio, how is he able to walk free, do seminars, speak on radio shows, and book hotel conference centers for his events? Edward Snowden had to move to another country and live in hiding after blowing the whistle on the NSA. But Corey Good goes to Mars for 20 years, blows the whistle on a military child abduction program that genetically alters kids' DNA, and spends billions of black budget dollars meeting with blue chicken aliens, and you can go hear Corey Good speak about this for $100 in Peoria, Illinois next weekend. It doesn't add up. I don't have anything against Corey Good personally, but I can choose to not believe what he says. I may lose a subscriber or two who believes the guy, but I'm interested in the truth here. Stories like his are fun, but I personally feel like they damage the honest work of all the serious UFO and alien hypothesis researchers who have sacrificed careers and more over the past several decades. And just so you think I'm not being overly critical or harsh, here is a direct paragraph from the About Me page of one of Good's websites. Quote, Good continues his IE work now and remains in direct physical contact with the Blue Avians of the Sphere Being Alliance who have chosen him as a delegate to interface with multiple ET federations and councils on their behalf, liaison with the SSP Alliance Council, and deliver important messages to humanity. So fine. If Corey Good is the ambassador to the Blue Avian Aliens and remains in direct physical contact with them on a regular basis like he says he does, 
then bring a blue avian alien to a press conference and let's hear what they have to say in person. I will be the first one there to listen. And now we embark into a realm so deep and twisted that it makes Corey Good's claims look as bland and factual as an accountant's third quarter balance sheet. Welcome to the world of the Andromeda Council. First, we will learn what the Andromeda Council is, and then we will learn about one of their successful missions to destroy multiple undersea alien reptilian bases. And this is directly from the Andromeda Council website. The Andromeda Council is an intergalactic, interstellar, and interdimensional governance and development body of aligned, benevolent star systems and planets of sentient intelligent life for worlds in both the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies. The Andromeda galaxy is also known as M31 to the people of Earth. Consider it also as the Mother Council, literally the governing body of all the various interdimensional councils. Its most senior member is the Octurian High Council, Planet Patola. As an Earth analogy, it can absolutely be considered an interdimensional intergalactic deep space United Nations. The chaired senior members of the council comprise a total of 12 different distinct member worlds and many, many races. There is one ambassador per seat for each of the 12 senior member worlds. There are also members with junior status that are not listed below. The Galactic Federation, as outlined on the opposite side of the page, is represented by the number 10 senior member of the council, the people of the Tau Ceti star system, planet Zeta. As a high-level governance body, the Galactic Council, as it is known by its senior ambassadors, diplomats, and councils, is responsible for setting precedents, protocols, conditions of behavior regarding planetary exploration and first contact, new membership, and trade relations among its member planets. Its own conduct is guided by measured and adhered to by the highest degree of intergalactic standards, ethics, and protocols. Every decision it makes is very cautious and deliberate. The council itself is held responsible to a very rigorous set of governing laws and mandates to which it must adhere and obey. The council has a non-voting chairman from... from... <laughs> the council has a non-voting chairman from the Andromeda Galaxy, the star system Zenate, planet Tishtai and non-voting vice chairwoman from the star system Miroc, planet Terial. The Miroc star system and planet Terial are located in the Milky Way galaxy, though they can be seen from Earth as being in the Andromeda constellation. The Zenate star system is itself physically located in the Andromeda galaxy. These two people, as so many on the Andromeda Council, live in what would be considered at the mid-level 5th dimension density 5D level. There are a few 3D, 3rd dimensional members of the council having junior membership status similar to planet Earth with far less diversity of people, 4D, 5D, 6D, 7D, 8D, and 9D beings that are members of this governance body. 
there are living accommodations on the primary Andromeda Council biosphere where many council meetings are held for the people who live in all of these dimensions of life. Okay, so this is maybe a quarter of what's there, and that's just on the first page, and it goes on at length, but I think that's quite enough for us to understand. Well, I'm not sure if understand is the right word, but okay, we get it. So what has the Andromeda Council been up to lately? This is from a page entitled, The Hard Reality and Difficult Truth of the Draco and Hydro Reptilian Presence on Planet Earth. So here we go. An era of increasing knowledge for the people of planet Earth, destruction of reptilian undersea bases, and a detailed listing of captured high-ranking military officers and officials. An ongoing war in outer space between good, higher-density dimensional forces of the Andromeda Council, led by the people of planet Cana of the Procyon star system, had finally won and defeated the Draco and Hydro Reptilians and their strategic partners and allies, or the Orion Greys. Over the coming months and into the next year, accurately reported days ahead of time in each instance, the finding and successful clearing out or destruction of no less than six of the 15 Draco and Hydro Reptilian undersea operated bases, which also included the deep underground lattice network of tunnels connected to an underground base located far northeast of Richmond, Virginia, and was also directly due west of Washington, D.C. This was the first actual base to be hit, and the job was done with deep, resonant, highly compressed sonic blasts resulting in an earthquake that literally collapsed all of the connecting tunnels as well as the actual underground bases. Interestingly enough, the last major base to be hit was also in the area of Washington, D.C. This one was off the coast, undersea, out in the Atlantic Ocean, which would be considered directly off the eastern seaboard of the United States, thank you, directly due east of Washington, D.C. You can click on this map and it will take you to a larger version complete with a list of all 15 shuttered or destroyed reptilian operated undersea base locations around the globe. An extensive, highly detailed original interview revealed the large scale operation of this undersea base including the discovery of a total overall 10,000 Draco and Hydro reptilian beings which included 2,000 of the highest ranking reptilian cabal military officers, and more stationed on planet Earth at the time. Most were generals and colonels. Of these reptilian military officers included was a five-star and a two-star reptilian general. They also discovered 3,000 high-ranking cabal and Illuminati officials, some who were reptilian and off-planet human blended hybrids, the remaining reptilians, those in operation positions, administrators and engineers, they were as support staff. There was a large-scale battle that lasted for days. Many reptilians died. Out of the total 10,000 reptilians, 2,000 remaining of the highest-ranking military officers and officials were captured and sent to the primary Andromeda Council biosphere when they were tried, convicted, and sentenced for crimes against humanity in a universal war crime tribunal. The people of Procyon also captured 50 of the highest ranking cabal and Illuminati officials at the time, dictating orders to the human power structure, the powers that should not be, 
the human ruling elite here on planet Earth. These above facts resulted in long-time statement about why, even back then, this war was, for the most part, over. We saw the destruction of the last five reptilian undersea bases out of a total of 15 located here on planet Earth. And I'll spare you the rest of it. At least we can all breathe a sigh of relief now that the many reptilian undersea bases have been destroyed and the high-ranking reptilian Draco officers captured. I don't really know what to say about that. I don't know if it's fun. It gets a little scary for multiple reasons. You may have already heard about the Andromeda Council from one of our weird internet find posts on Patreon. If you did, that means you're an RFA agent who supports Renegade Files on Patreon, so thank you for helping me make the show. You help me make the show, and your support allows me to post the episodes without ads. Thank you so much. If you aren't already an RFA agent, you can help support Renegade Files on Patreon and become an active part of the show's creative process. As a member there, you receive exclusive content unavailable anywhere else while making the show possible. Visit patreon.com slash renegadefiles or the link in the show notes, check it out, and become an RFA agent today. I will see you in there, and thanks for your help. So, that's enough deep strangeness for now. Part 3. The Official Space Force in this section, we'll dive into the real Space Force, the mysterious X-37B space plane, and the possibly soon-to-be-unveiled Black Ops space weapon. This leads us into the present day, and now we have a full-fledged, official, new branch of the military, which we call the United States Space Force. The Space Force has been the target of jokes and memes from the outset, mostly because few people understand what they do. It also hasn't helped that the Space Force crest looks nearly identical to the Star Trek Starfleet Command logo. It's worth a look if you haven't seen it. I'll just put a link to one of the images in the show notes. Nevertheless, we do have a branch of the military whose focus is space. Former President Trump gets some of the credit as well as some of the heat for this agency, because he was on the bridge in the captain's chair when the agency was signed into existence. The Space Force was also created with full bipartisan support, but according to research I have done, a fully realized branch of the military isn't something that happens within the four years of any one president's term, and in fact, the military is said to reveal critical orchestrations to the public at something more like 50 years after they start working them out, this would mean that the U.S. Space Force and its creation far precedes Trump, and in fact, it starts to look like the ideas put forth by the cyber thief McKinnon may have been glimpses into what we are seeing being made public today. It would be nice if we had some of the documents that McKinnon swiped or says he swiped so we could search through the known officers who helped develop the new Space Force and see if any of those people showed up on McKinnon's non-terrestrial officer list. And do we have non-terrestrial officers now? Well, we definitely have airmen designated as astronauts who work for the U.S. military already. The Air Force has long operated their Air Force Space Command Division, and in fact, those astronauts and airmen were integrated into the new Space Force over the new branch's first 18 months. So the militarization of space is something that people are passionate about, myself included. 
But the notion that the military in space is all from and because of Trump and the new Space Force is fully incorrect. The military, as we have seen, has had its hand in space operations from the very first days of NASA and before. And there's no reason to speculate any further about what the Space Force does because all of their information is available on what I must say is one of the best designed and easiest to navigate and understand governmental military websites I've ever seen. I'll put a link to the official Space Force homepage in the show notes also so you can check that out. According to the U.S. Space Force's own documentation, The United States Space Force is a separate and distinct branch of the armed services organized under the Department of the Air Force in a manner very similar to how the Marine Corps is organized under the Department of the Navy. So the Space Force official mission is as follows. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before... Okay, seriously though, here is their actual mission. The USSF is responsible for organizing, training, and equipping guardians to conduct global space operations that enhance the way our joint coalition forces fight while also offering decision makers military options to achieve national objectives. Okay, so, terrifying. In general, The U.S. Space Force soldiers are called Guardians. The branch's motto is, Always Above, and their purpose is to maintain the U.S.'s access to space, also that of our allies, and to protect our assets in space, such as the staggering array of communication, navigation, weather, and other satellites. At the same time, they are there to provide, as they say, military options to achieve national objectives, So spying, and maybe space-based, or at least space-transferred weapons. According to what I've learned about the U.S. Space Force, the way they look at space is the same way that the Navy looks at the seas, and the Air Force looks at the terrestrial skies. Just like the sea and the sky, space is part of our physical domain, and as such, our American military and its allies must have a presence there to maintain mainly their access to it, and the security of those who travel within it, as well as the security of the property that they stage within it. It makes sense from that perspective, and in fact, we have already been doing essentially this through the Air Force and Navy together with NASA for generations at this point. I actually drove to Patrick Air Force Base recently, which is on the east coast of Florida, and it's the home of the U.S. Space Force's Space Launch Delta 45, the 45th Space Wing, commanded by Brigadier General Stephen G. Purdy Jr. The 45th Space Wing location of the Space Force oversaw 37 rocket launches in 2021 and supports every vertical launch system in the U.S. inventory. In other words, if the United States has a rocket that can go into space, the Space Launch Delta 45 wing at Patrick Space Force Base can launch it. Now, when I visited the Space Force 45th wing, I didn't have or request any access or tour, and all I really did was drive up and check out the signs, but it is right on the beach of the Atlantic, and the drive up there is on A1A, which is one of the country's most scenic highways. 
and I do love Cocoa and Satellite Beach, so it was mainly just a fun road trip to see a cool place. One of the missions conducted by the Space Force from Patrick in conjunction with NASA at Cape Canaveral is the launching, landing, and mission management of the Boeing X-37B orbital test vehicle. Now the X-37B is often called the secret space plane and it began as a NASA project in 1999. It was transferred to the Department of Defense in 2004 and was previously managed by the Air Force Space Command we talked about earlier until that military division was absorbed into the U.S. Space Force in 2019. Now much conspiracy lore has been made about the X-37B. Like I said, it's often called the secret space plane, and people make a big deal online about how no one knows what this reusable orbiter is for or what it's doing on its long orbiting mission. The simple fact is, this is just not true. We know as much about what the X-37B is doing on its missions as we do about almost any other space vehicle or launched project, and maybe more. We can read the details of its missions on the Space Force websites, and once again, I have to say that I've been impressed with the clarity, ease of use, and transparency of the Space Force websites, and their public communication in general is really good. So let's pull back the curtain surrounding this mysterious and misunderstood space plane. The Boeing X-37B is also known as the Orbital Test Vehicle, and it is a reusable robotic spacecraft. It looks a lot like a small space shuttle, but since it's unmanned, it doesn't have a windshield or any windows, which does make it look unusual. The X-37B is boosted into space by a launch vehicle, so it hitches a ride on a rocket. This way it doesn't have to be as big as the space shuttle because it doesn't have to have its own takeoff engines and carry its own fuel, at least for the ascent. Then it lands as a space plane, just like the shuttle did, except that all of this is controlled remotely and in conjunction with robotics that are on the X-37B itself. Its first orbital mission was in April of 2010, and its most recent mission concluded just a few days ago as of this recording on 12 November 2022, after remaining in orbit for 908 days, which is a record for this type of craft. Let's look into what the Space Force does tell us about this record-breaking mission. This is from a press release from Kennedy Space Center, Florida. The X-37B Orbital Test Vehicle 6, OTV-6, the U.S. Space Force's unmanned, reusable space plane, successfully deorbited and landed at NASA's Kennedy Space Center Shuttle Landing Facility on November 12, 2002, at 5.22 a.m. OTV-6 was the first mission to introduce a service module A-ring attached to the rear of the vehicle, expanding the number of experiments that can be hosted during a mission. And then there's a quote from General Chance Saltzman, Chief of Space Operations, which is, quote, This mission highlights the Space Force's focus on collaboration in space exploration and expanding low-cost access to space for our partners within and outside of the Department of the Air Force." This service module, successfully separated from the OTV before landing, 
which is a necessary activity due to the aerodynamic forces experienced by the X-37B vehicle upon re-entry. In the coming weeks, the service module will be disposed of in accordance with best practices. Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall said, quote, The deliberate manner in which we conduct on-orbit operations to include the service module disposal speaks to the United States' commitment to safe and responsible space practices, particularly as the issue of growing orbital debris threatens to impact global space operations. So in other words, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, is saying the deliberate way that we proactively deal with retrieving something that we have to get rid of in space speaks to our commitment to keeping it clean, particularly since space is becoming so cluttered with all our junk that it's going to become an issue soon. So let's move along, and here we come to some of the cool stuff. The OTV-6 mission hosted the Naval Research Laboratory's Photovoltaic Radio Frequency Antenna Module. This experiment successfully harnessed solar rays outside of Earth's atmosphere and aimed to transmit power to the ground in the form of radio frequency microwave energy. Additionally, the U.S. Air Force Academy Falcon Sat 8, developed in partnership with the Air Force Research Laboratory, was successfully deployed in October 2021. FalconSat 8 remains in orbit, providing Academy cadets unique hands-on experience as space operators prior to entering active duty. Multiple NASA experiments were deployed on OTV-6. The Materials Exposure and Technology Innovation in Space, or METIS-2, included thermal control coatings, printed electronic materials, and candidate radiation shielding materials. METIS-1, which flew on OTV-5, consisted of similar sample plates mounted on the flight vehicle. NASA scientists will leverage data collected after the materials have spent 900-plus days in orbit and compare observed effects to ground simulations, validating and improving the precision of space environment models, so testing materials for space. Another NASA experiment aims to investigate the effect of long-duration space exposure on seeds. Scientists are interested in the seeds' resistance and susceptibility to space environment unique stresses, notably radiation. The seeds experiment will inform space crop production for future interplanetary missions and the establishment of permanently inhabited bases in space. So that's pretty cool. So that's another experiment that the XB-38 took up, a bunch of seeds to study if the radiation in space affects them because we're going to have to have seeds if we're going to explore very far into space. Apparently that's the idea. The X-37B continues to push the boundaries of experimentation enabled by an elite government and industry team behind the scenes. The ability to conduct on-orbit experiments and bring them home safely for in-depth analysis on the ground has proven valuable for the Department of the Air Force and the scientific community. The addition of the service module on OTV-6 allowed us to host more experiments than ever before. The sixth mission conducted on-orbit experiments for 908 days, and that's the end of the press release. All of that seems reasonable and valid. Now, it's true that we don't know what we don't know, and the X-37B could be doing many other things that are just left out of what the Space Force is telling us, but that's true about any military operation. So why all of the cloak-and-dagger speculation about this one part of the space program? 
I think that much of this has come from some credible questions raised by a few interesting parties. So let's go through those real quick. On May 2010, Tom Burkhart speculated on Space Daily that the X-37B could be used as a spy satellite or to deliver weapons from space, but the Pentagon quickly denied those claims. Then in January 2012, allegations were made that the X-37B was being used to spy on China's Tiagong-1 space station module. Former U.S. Air Force orbital analyst Brian Whedon later refuted this claim, emphasizing that the different orbits of the two spacecraft precluded any practical surveillance. In October 2014, The Guardian reported the claims of security experts that the X-37B was being used to test reconnaissance and spy sensors, particularly how they hold up against radiation and other hazards of orbit. This may well be true, and if it were, it's no surprise that it would have been kept a secret. Then, in November 2016, the International Business Times speculated that the U.S. government was testing a version of the M-Drive electromagnetic microwave thruster on the fourth flight of the X-37B. Boeing has since stated that it no longer pursues this area of research, so we don't know if that mission was being used to test the M-Drive or not, and Boeing says no, or at least not anymore. But the U.S. Air Force has stated that the XB-37 is testing a Hall Effect Thruster System, H-A-L-L. The M-Drive concept seems to have been fully abandoned because tests never yielded results, but to put it briefly, Hall Effect Thrusters are cool. They could solve the issue of carrying fuel to carry fuel we encounter in deep space exploration scenarios, but not the problem of time over great distance. In July 2019, former United States Secretary of the Air Force Heather Wilson explained that when an X-37B was in an elliptical orbit, it could, at perigee, use the thin atmosphere to make an orbit change, preventing some observers from discovering the new orbit for a while. This would permit secret activities. Perigee is just a fancy scientific way to say the closest to the planet's center, or in other words, when it's at its lowest. Astronomer Jonathan McDowell, editor of Jonathan's Space Report, has stated that satellites launched from the X-37B were not reported as required by the Registration Convention to the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, so other parties to the convention would not know about them. So it seems what has happened is that these speculative ideas were widely published. And so people latched onto the notion that the military was conducting secretive space missions and then when they went to look at the X-37B, it looks super weird, like a plane with no windows or windshield, so it has this unsettling robot vibe about it. And the thing is that it's actually doing somewhat routine things as far as space exploration goes. It's basically a flying shipping container that can be reused, so they use it to deploy satellites and carry experiments into space that they can bring back. It essentially does what the space shuttle did, but without a manned crew. It just looks spooky doing it. And it's easier for people to just say, no one knows what that thing is doing up there, than to actually look into it and read the very transparent descriptions of its missions. It doesn't mean that they aren't keeping things from us, but there's plenty of available information on what the X-37B does. Part four, the Black Ops secret space weapon. 
to tie together this episode on the secret space force, we're going to look into a clandestine operation that has fully developed and created a space weapon. This is not a conspiracy theory. We know it exists. We don't know exactly what it is or what it does, but some serious people have a pretty good idea, or at least a few good ideas that are very likely in the ballpark and probably dead on. So what do we know about this Black Ops secret space weapon? Three things. One, soon the US Air Force will make its new secret weapon public. Two, this unveiling will be a deterrent to other military space powers. And three, Air Force officials and the President must agree to the declassification before it's made public. Here is a direct quote from Popular Mechanics. The U.S. Air Force has a top-secret space weapon and is preparing to show it to the world. According to an article on the Breaking Defense website, quote, The system in question has long been cloaked in the blackest of black secrecy veils. Developed as a so-called special access program known only to a very few, very senior U.S. government leaders. While exactly what capability could be unveiled is unclear, insiders say the reveal is likely to include a real-world demonstration of an active defense capability to degrade or destroy a target satellite and or spacecraft. So all accounts and educated guesses about what this secret space weapon could be point toward it being an anti-satellite device of some kind. Anti-satellite devices are nothing terribly new. Russia has one that's ground-based. We have a few. So you might wonder, why would the military develop something in secret just to tell the world about it? And this is a really good question. According to General John Hyten, the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a vocal proponent of disclosing the capabilities of this space weapon, quote, deterrence doesn't happen in the classified world, unquote. So the reason to tell the world what this thing is and show them what it can do is to deter enemy nations from trying any funny stuff with their satellites and to leave ours alone at the same time. It does make sense. That's all I have for us tonight. I think it's possible that there is or was a secret space force to some degree, if that's how we wish to put it. The fact is that the military and the space agencies certainly don't divulge everything they do. That's just the nature of the military and the modern exploration of our world as conducted by large government agencies and their contractors. We could also say that we have a secret army and a secret navy and a secret FBI and probably be somewhat accurate. As far as secret manned bases on the moon and Mars, I personally doubt it. But part of that is because I doubt a lot about what NASA, never a straight answer, tells us. We'll get into some of that on another episode. Corey Good and the Andromeda Council, fun entertainment at best and disinformation and marginalization more likely. And the newly created U.S. Space Force, it's really a continuation of programs that NASA and the Air Force had up and running for decades. All of this circles back around to the study of the UFO phenomenon, and if the nebulous they have hard answers around this topic, they still aren't talking much. I'm optimistic, and I believe what Jim Mars said in his book Alien Agenda 
If the aliens wanted to obliterate us, they would have done it already. Doesn't mean that there's no threat, but either alien and UFO proof eludes us, or it's hidden from us by the government. I heard someone say that if the government is hiding evidence of UFOs from the public since the 1940s, then they've done a better job of that than anything else they've ever tried to do. That's a clever way to put it, but I'm not so sure it's exactly true. Our government and military does plenty of good things, plenty of amazing things, plenty of great accomplishments, and we tend to forget that, particularly in the conspiracy community. I'll keep looking up, keep my eyes and ears open, keep looking past those things that reek of spin, and keep bringing you along with me to explore these worlds of high strangeness because it's so much fun. Thank you sincerely for going into deep space with me. I love having you as part of the Renegade Files crew. If you liked this episode, you can help support me and Renegade Files on Patreon and become an active part of the show's creative process. As a member, you receive exclusive content unavailable anywhere else while making the show possible. Tap the Patreon link in the show notes now, check it out, and become an RFA agent. I'll see you in there, and thanks for your help. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, fire child. Stay wild, fire child.